Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 69. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a very special guest, comedy juggler, sideshow empresario, and man about town, Mr. Matt Baker. Before we talk to Matt, though, let's thank our sponsors, starting with sponsor number one, the IJA. The IJA has a special place in my heart next to my aorta. That's right. They're having a big festival this year in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's going to be June 24th through the 30th. Space is still available. Get your tickets now at juggle.org. Register and join the fun in Fort Wayne, Indiana, June 24th through 30th. Don't forget, this festival is directed by juggling historian Mr. David Kane. Hey, before you listen to the podcast with me as host, why don't you buy my book, Driven to Succeed, available at Amazon.com, or my toy, The Ring Dama, available at Ringdama.com. Okay, enough subscription news, enough festival news, enough promotion of my own activities. Drop everything, get ready for Mr. Matt Baker. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 69. My special guest and good friend, Matt Baker. Hello, Matt. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Sure. Now, you have your own podcast, Weekly Photo Caption Contest. And I'm sure even before we talk about juggling, people want to know, how do I get involved with Matt Baker's Weekly Photo Caption Contest? I know I don't have time to respond to all the emails of people inquiring about how to get involved, but essentially I run a podcast called the Odd and Offbeat Podcast with my friend and uh, comedian and magician, Louis Fox, and uh, post a weekly photo and people leave funny comments and the best comment wins. We make a big meme out of it. And so you can do that on the Odd and Offbeat website, oddandoffbeat.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or friend me on Facebook. And we do it on my own personal page. So a variety of number a variety of ways to do it. So my first question is, am I not odd or offbeat enough to actually be on a guest or podcast? What kind of guests do you have on it? Um, well, we occasionally have guests. Usually it's people with weird and unusual or like weird and unusual stories. A lot of performers. I think we've only interviewed six or seven people, uh, but we prefer to have them in studio. So unlike you, we're doing this over Skype. We, it's a lot of riffing and stuff. So whenever you're in Seattle, we'd love to have you on. Cool. And we'll do some riffing. Yeah, absolutely. That's us. Now, is that an offshoot of your interest in the side? I know one of your, your side projects to juggling is the Sideshow Museum called the Museum of Curious Things. Can you explain what that is? That's a, like a... Yeah, I, uh, I have a mobile curiosity museum, and it's in a 1971 Airstream trailer that's been gutted and uh, converted into a museum. And so events hire me to bring it in, exhibit it, and it you know, shows like a shrunken head, human remains, death certificates for George Washington, weird x-rays, uh, unusual taxidermy, cryptozoological samples. So it has a wide array of unusual objects from around the world. So it's fun. it's a fun side project. And do you have a favorite of your unusual objects, one that really stands out as being a real find that you're happy to have in your museum? Um, I have an authentic shrunken head, which was cool to get. They're hard to come by these days. And so uh, I acquired that about a year and a half ago. So that was that's pretty exciting to have like an authentic human shrunken head. Can you actually mention that on the podcast that you have a shrunken head in your... Yeah, it's legal. I mean, you can trade body parts. Uh, in some states, it's illegal to buy and sell body parts. But in the state of Washington, it is completely okay. You know, it's funny. Speaking of shrunken heads, I was just looking at the picture of the two of us because we did a job together in South Korea. 
Yeah. And we took a picture together in a like lily uh, field and you know, <laughs> on one of our hikes. My head was than your head. <laughs> was, was I closer to the camera or just do I have a giant head? I just have a giant head. I actually have a uh, dinky head. I okay. think you have a normal side. Uh, I think mine is abnormally small. I promise you one day, if I were to go first, I'll, I'll give you the rights to my shrunken head. Oh, yeah. My parents are going to give me their remains. Oh. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. I already have my dad's gallstones, so I'm already, I am already got part of them. How's that conversation come up? that they offer you their remains. Just like, what do you want to do when you, you know, when you pass away? And they say, I want to be buried. I'm like, well, well could, could we do something? Can we let her arm or, you know, put, put you in? Yeah, you know, normal parent, uh, kid conversations. Sure, I've had that talk with my mother. Yeah. Hey, when you're gone? Yeah, you know, but when my dad gave me his kidney stones, like he had, he had to go in to get them like surgically removed. And so he was, and he actually came to me and was like, do you want these kidney stones? And I was like a moment of like, our, we finally bonded over something. It's like he finally accepted me for me. Yeah. Let's go back. Let's go way back then. Let's talk about, you know, before juggling ended your life and what your family life was like. Were your parents in any way associated with show business? Not directly. They they were. My father was a high school Spanish teacher, and my mom was a mom. She took care of four kids. I was the youngest of four. But I did grow up in a, a, a Mormon family, and we did a lot of performing and talent shows and Boy Scout troop skits. And so I grew up kind of acting silly in front of audiences in the communities that my family was involved in: Boy Scouts, Mormon Church, my school stuff like that, but never, they never were professional performers or ever even dabbled in doing it as a hobby. That's surprising to me because when I think of you, I don't really think of you as, I mean, I guess maybe I'm, I'm stereotyping, but as a member of the Mormon church or someone that would be sort of brought up in that upbringing, did you rebel against it or did you sort of buy into it? Or what was your, what was your feeling about your upbringing in the church? Well, initially, I definitely bought into it as I mean, as I think all kids do when you're raised in a family that believes a certain thing, you mm -hmm. sort of just accept what they believe is the truth. And yeah, I, eventually I did rebel when I started to sort of have my own thoughts and opinions and interests and hobbies. And, um, and they sort of pushed back against those specific hobbies that I was into. And so yeah, we clashed quite a bit when I was a teenager. But I mean, I don't I'm not a Mormon. I mean, I, I was baptized Mormon when I was eight years old. But you know, I'm not a religious person or it just happens to be the family that I grew up in. But they're all still practicing. They all went on their Mormon missions, graduated from BYU. My dad was a bishop. Uh, so yeah, it was an interesting upbringing. But I'm glad it, I'm glad I was exposed to that at a young age. And you know, I wouldn't change my family for anything in the world. Well, that's nice. I mean, like I say, it's it's. Uh, I'm respectful of everybody's beliefs. I'm not someone who has many uh, religious beliefs myself. Not having yeah. been born it or raised in it. Yeah, I think it is something that's passed down in family traditions, and it can be a very family, uh, much of a unifier, but also something that sometimes uh, breaks families apart. Like if, yeah, are you allowed? To, is it is it one of those religions where you're allowed to communicate with people who aren't in the church? Or yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Mormons are sort of, they're just regular, you know, they're kind of Christians with more extreme sort of ex extreme views on specific things. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's just normal people. Like nothing, nothing weird. Do you know many Mormons? I knew a group called the Brunson Brothers who were four trumpet players who, uh, you know, were uh, an act that we used to work with in the 80s. Uh, and uh, they were all very big in the Mormon church and very nice guys. It was funny because... Um, they used to swear a lot. I think that maybe that was their one way they could rebel. Yeah. Like yeah. they didn't drink they didn't drink caffeine. They were very straight laced. But I think that was the one way they could kind of show that they were still cool kids.
Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And that's why I think when I sort of rebelled, I sort of went to the extreme because it was, uh, you know, you grow up with no coffee, no swearing, no sex, can't watch R-rated movies. You got to go to church for three hours a week. And it's like, wow, this is this this is horrible. So when I started rebelling and sort of thinking for myself, I went very extreme. And so I think some Mormons can do that. Some rebel in just swearing, some do it via sex. But yeah. And it was was juggling part of your rebellion or when what time did uh, how did juggling into your life? Or was there was it footbag first? I remember you being a uh one of the type of jugglers who sort of starts with footbag and then segues into juggling. What came first? Uh, footbag was definitely first. I played sports as a kid. I was big into soccer, still big into soccer. I still play today. At a young age, that was part of what I, you know, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which was, was a pretty hippie town, pretty, uh, pretty granola. And so hacky sack was around as sort of the peak of its popularity. And so I played all the time as a kid, 13, 14. And I, it really caught my interest because it was naturally easy for me because I was pretty good at soccer and it helped me sort of like have an identity and sort of identify with the sort of alternative culture that my parents were against. And uh, yeah, started playing and, um, you know, I moved to Samoa. My parents sent me off to Samoa to like a sort of troubled kids camp out there. And uh, yeah, I played every day out there. And when I came back, there was a hacky sack tournament in my hometown and I noticed like people juggling and you know, hacky sack was pretty integrated. All the hacky, or all the footbag players could juggle, and it was just sort of like a cool thing to see. And so, yeah, I played footbag up to my mid thirties. Now let's talk a little about Samoa because that's certainly an interesting place to end up. So you were sent to Samoa. It wasn't like a choice. I know I've been to Samoa myself. I went to Tonga. Were you near Tonga, or where were you in Samoa? Well, Tonga is its own country. Tonga is okay. a separate country from Samoa. So, so Western Samoa is it's it's a it's a small island region out by Tonga. There's American Samoa and there's Western Samoa. American Samoa is like a territory of the United States. Gotcha. But Western Samoa is its own. It's a really small country, and my parents sent me to an American academy out there. At the time, it was called the Better Way Academy, and it specialized in sort of helping kids get through their struggles. There was kids from all over the United States for there for a variety of reasons. Some were, were in gangs, some were there for violence, some were there for drugs, some were there for just being pathological liars. So it was really a wide spectrum of issues that uh, kids had and the reasons that they were there. How'd you adapt to it? Was it something that you accepted and was it very arduous and, and strict or were you able to also sort of enjoy being in Samoa? It kind of sounds like they sent you as far away as possible. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that led up to me being sent there. That was not definitely the first option. I got kicked out. Of, I got kicked out of my first high school, and my parents sent me to like a wilderness program where I had to survive in the wilderness for a month. And then I switched high schools. I ended up going to the high school where my dad taught at. And then I, you know, a series of events happened. I ran away from home three or four times, and so my parents just said, "We're we're tired of this kid. We're gonna we're gonna send him as far away as we can." get him out, far away from his comfort zone as we can. And uh, so Samoa was the option. Like, ironically, my they only knew about it because my cousin's neighbor was like a partial owner of the program. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like, okay, we're just going to send him to this odd place we've never even heard of. And but yeah, it wasn't it was it was definitely like a, a school. It was a rehab facility. You know, you're completely enclosed. It's not like, okay, it's not like you, I'm out in with the Samoan people. You know, Samoa, Samoans work there. They're all the, the staff was 95% Samoan. 
But it wasn't until you like sort of work through your issues and sort of the school says you're okay to go out in the community, uh, are you allowed to go, even go out? So towards the end, I was a DJ at the local radio station. I was staying with small families, but in the beginning, it was definitely like, you're here, you gotta get your stuff together before you're allowed to do anything fun. How long were you in Samoa? I was there for about 16 months. Wow, okay. Yeah. That's pretty intense. Now, do you feel like this early experience and now that you, you know, that the, the life you're leading now as a juggler, that this is sort of, um, I don't want to say an offshoot of that, but for us that have sort of made our living as jugglers and as performers, there's a certain amount of freedom. There's a certain amount of sort of responsibility that we're, we're lacking in our lives as far as the, I don't want to say the youthful ability to sort of keep away from kind of more real life situations. Mm-hmm. But do you feel that this sort of led you to sort of look for that kind of, of lifestyle? Well, I think what it did is it gave me the opportunity at a young age and away from my family and away from sort of social pressure to figure out what I wanted and who I was, mm-hmm. and uh, which I was not able to do back home in Eugene. There was too many outside influences, too many substances that I was had available that I and you know with my family being having the religious pressure I just had a hard time sort of figuring out who I was and what I wanted separate of all those things and so what it did it allowed me to go to a place that was a safe environment that was far away from everything and just allowed me to figure it out and be around other kids that also shared in that struggle and uh, but also to be in a country that really had nothing I mean it was a third world country at the time I haven't been back this is 20 something years ago but at the time, it was they still lived in huts. They still lived off the land. So to sort of be able to see that these people are happy, they're loving, they're giving, that they didn't really need much to survive and be happy, it really sort of opened my eyes to my place in the world as a, an American kid and a white American kid. And sort of uh, it opened my eyes to wanting to experience new cultures and sort of expose me to travel, that there's so much out there that worth experiencing and to you should take the opportunity to do it. But yeah, I don't know how much that has led into my juggling career, but it certainly opened the window into the desire to travel and sort of experience new things and integrate myself in a variety of different situations. But yeah, I don't feel uncomfortable around people that I don't speak my language or look like me or, you know, have different beliefs. I mean, that was sort of a nice tool I learned from being out there. Well, in addition to your juggling travel, you recently got back from a trip to Tanzania. That just something you decided to go and you said you went on safari, you were telling me. And so this quest for adventure isn't always satisfied just through the juggling work that you also like to get off and go off on your own and do these traveling trips. Why'd you choose Tanzania? Again, I I'm fascinated by things that challenge me, and uh, I like going to places that people don't look like me or believe things that I believe because I think it's it opens you up a lot more. And uh, so Tanzania was just like, hey, because I had been to Northern Africa a few times, but I'd never been to Southern or Eastern Africa, and so I just wanted to I wanted to check it out. My girlfriend was like wanted to she had one I was on her bucket list to go to on a safari, and so I was like, let's go to Tanzania. I learned a long time ago that you have this great job and it allows you so many luxuries, but it's important to live your life and it's important to like get away from your show and because it's easy to get caught up in your show. And so every year I try and go to a country I've never been to. Um, I always try and take time off and actually have an actual vacation that isn't sort of focused around my show or the travels that my show takes me to. 
So yeah, that's that's that was this year. It was Tanzania. And that's inspiring because you know, as someone who travels a lot and has their way paid and has flown over to do a job, as I sort of near the retirement from my career, I have trouble seeing that as an option, like just to travel on my own uh-huh. without having a job or agenda to to go to to be a tourist. Yeah. So, so it's nice to hear that you sort of can, can sort of balance it. Now, when you do like cruise ship shows and things like that. You're flown all over the place. Do you often take extra time or do you kind of go in and go out based on what the contract is? Uh, well, it just depends. Depends on my schedule. But usually if it's somewhere I've never been, I try and go early or stay late. For example, I'm going to Bora Bora uh, next week. And so nice. um, I'm going to a day or two early just to sort of check it out. Relationships make it a little bit more challenging because you're gone from your loved one for a certain amount of time already and you want to get back as soon as possible to sort of minimize the amount of time you're away. But um, a day here or there is great. Sometimes it's a week. You know, sometimes I'll, uh, instead of having them fly me home, I'll have them fly me somewhere else. You know, I like had them fly me to Mexico City over Christmas um, just because I was off for four days. So it was like, instead of going home, I'll go somewhere I haven't been. So I went to Mexico City. So I think it's important to try and live your life outside of your show. You work to live. You don't live to work, you know? So, and I just, I like just seeing places. I think you're only limited to a few hours sometimes when you're in these places for your show. Sometimes you fly in that morning and you fly out the next morning. So you don't have a lot of time to see the the location that you're in. So I do try and take a little bit of extra time to sort of check out the weird stuff that's in the area. Well, let's talk about how you got in this job in the first place. So let's go back to when you're you're, you're you're exposed to footbagging. You start meeting some people who are jugglers. Do you remember the first time you saw juggling or who the first juggler was? I don't actually, like, I don't, you know, you asked me earlier before we started recording about like learning to juggle and I don't really have a definitive moment where I learned to juggle. I think just as playing sports as a kid, I think I I was really coordinated and I think somewhere along the way I just figured it out, but I don't remember seeing it, but I remember, you know, going to that hacky, going to the footbag tournament when I was about 17 and just seeing like, I mean, there was world-class footbaggers there and they were all juggling and sort of just like taking it all in and being being in awe of these people who not only could do footbag, which I was passionate about, but could also do all these cool tricks with juggling. So I think I just sort of started picking it up and dabbling with it while I was taking breaks from footbag and stuff. And when did the idea of performing enter your life then? At what point did you, you learn to juggle? You're a footbagger, an athlete. You start meeting these other people. What led you down the the road to performing? When uh, I came back from Samoa, I attended my junior year of high school. I was about 17 years old. And uh, it was, I had a hard time sort of integrating back into high school after being in this sort of rehab facility in another country. You know, I came back from kids dealing with issues and people who have been in gang fights and shot and and then coming back to a high school where people are like, uh, J- Johnny didn't ask me out last night. It's like, yeah, my buddy, my buddy's been shot three times. <laughs> right. It was tough to integrate back to have that high school mentality. And so I kind of suffered through my junior year. It was challenging. And so in between my junior and senior year, like juggling, there's there's footbag forums and footbag websites and stuff that all the people go to. There was a job posting for uh, audition for a tour uh, for footbag in Europe. And I'll, oh, OK, I'm going to I'm going to try that. And so I just made some crappy video. You know, I had dreadlocks at the time just in my parents uh, driveway 
send in the video, not thinking anything of it. Sure enough, they call me and say, hey, you want to come out for the audition in Florida? And so when I, so I'm like, hells yeah, I do. Why? Of course I do. Mm-hmm. So flew me to Florida and, you know, I was with a bunch of other world-class footbag players, like world champions, people I've been reading about, and they're all there. And here's a little hippie kid who's not very good at footbag, but I was good enough to get the job. And so they took me out to Europe when I was 17. I dropped out of high school in between or right before my senior year, moved to Ireland and Snickers Candy Bars sponsored this footbag tour. You know, they took about 14 footbaggers from all around North America and toured us around wearing Snickers gear, throwing out Snickers bars at events at gas stations and schools and shopping malls. It had like a Snickers car. So, I mean, they were just using footbag to sort of hawk their product. Mm-hmm. 17-year-old kid, I was like, this is the greatest thing in the history of the world. I get to play footbag every day. It's my first job ever. They're paying me like 800 bucks a week or 1,000 bucks a week, whatever it was. And uh, yeah, I get to be in Ireland. And so I did that in Ireland and then I did it in Ir- and then in, I did it in the Czech Republic after that. When I came home, I'm like, I don't ever want to do anything else other than what I love for money. Well, I wouldn't uh, encourage kids to drop out of school, but that sounds pretty awesome. I got to admit. Yeah. It kind of spoils you for like regular work. It's hard to go work at the McDonald's after that. Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, every guidance counselor is like, oh, stay in school. Don't play hacky sack. You're like, well, second, you know, some of us can. Right. And this time you had also, you'd also beaten your demons. I mean, I know you've been clean yeah. and sober for many years, so... You sort of let that behind you in Samoa, all that other behavior. I graduated high school. I mean, I use the term dropout loosely because I just left school. Right. Uh, you know, I still maintained some level of study and I still was, I still went back to school for one term and right. I graduated. I have this opportunity to do the thing that I love and I seized that opportunity and I'm, I'm happy I did, you know, because it exposed me to being in front of people, doing a skill in front of an audience and sort of slowly realizing that you have to add to the skill. You have to show your personality, adding humor helped. And so it really opened my eyes to just performing. I had sort of a loose background with, you know, doing skits and stuff with my family. So it was, that helped to be able to act silly in front of an audience. So yeah, that's how I got into the performing world. And what about footbag itself? Like right now, nowadays, I know at a certain time I was kind of into it on the periphery. I was never a good player, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I I enjoyed the skill of it. I enjoyed being around the footbag players, especially guys like Pete Irish, uh, who were also into juggling and stuff like that, Tim Kelly. Nowadays, much like juggling, you don't really see it anymore. You don't see footbag. It didn't really prosper to the point where it got any kind of international or national exposure that I see. Yeah. Any idea what this current state of footbag is? Are you still involved with it? I'm not very involved in the, the footbag community anymore, but I am aware that it has lost sort of that traction because mm-hmm. I do footbag in my show. And sometimes when I perform at colleges, they sort of look at me like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Whereas 15, 20 years ago, everyone had done it. Everyone yeah. kind of grew up with it. So I don't know what's replaced it or probably video games, but it's a great sport. It's super technical. I mean, it's extremely hard. I mean, you're using your feet and doing, you know, all these crazy tricks that you people do with their hands with juggling. It's uh, complicated. I mean, so someone like Pete, Peter Irish, I mean, the, the fact that he can do all of that with his feet and his hands is like just unbelievable to me. It's it's a great exercise. I mean, I, you could probably still pick it up and just even just kicking the bag around, not even necessarily doing tricks. I think it's a, it's a good cardio it's good to keep your joints limber 
it's yeah, it's a great great skill to have. I I love kicking that the hacky sack around. Yeah, we did it in college, and you'd always walk around, you'd see people playing, and yeah, a lot of things have been replaced by by videos or by technology yeah. or yeah. the ability to just get on YouTube and entertain yourself by watching other people do things. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame because, uh, like I say, even though I wasn't very good, being in a circle with people, it has that community feeling that sometimes juggling, unless you're actually passing clubs. It, it kind of lacks because it's not like you juggle then throw someone a ball and they start to juggle. Where in footbag you watch and then you then you take your turn then you kick it back to the other yeah. person. Yeah, it's a very enjoyable thing. Hopefully, it will uh, in some way make some kind of comeback. Well, it's tough because it's uh, you're either because hacky sack is a name brand and everyone knows it by hacky sack. Mm-hmm. A lot of people aren't even familiar that the name of the sport is footbag or that 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 there's a world championships. Whereas like with juggling, it's like it's been around a really long time. So people can kind of be like, okay, I would imagine there's a juggling world championships and you know, you see juggling on TV and in movies. So mm-hmm. it's sort of in the ether of our culture, but footbag, not so much. And so you either can kick it a few times or you're really amazing at it. There's not really in, in, in between. Yeah. There's a, the barbarian uh, footbag. The one I remember was from uh, the Zohan movie with Adam Sandler. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually Pete was the double for Adam yeah, Sandler. Yeah, that, that was Pete. Pete was uh, Adam Sandler's double, but there was, yeah, there's a probably, I think there was three or four pro footbaggers in there. Yeah. But that was probably it's all there. I think in, um, there was a movie, uh, she's all that or something like that. Oh yeah. With Freddie Prince jr. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I know that, but actually, yeah, yeah. cause I remember that scene. He does a little, they bring him up on stage and he does a little. That's how he wins the girl. That's how he wins the girl. <laughs> Which is uh, completely false. So very misleading. Right. Well, they put him on the spot and instead of wilting under the pressure, he had his foot bag with him and he was able yeah. to do a little bit of a jam and uh, and seize the day. Yeah, but you are right. I mean, footbag is—it's a solo thing. You—you you sort of are performing for the people that are in your circle with you. It's sort of—it's kind of gone against what the original sort of principles were. Is like you don't serve—you know—now they'll serve themselves. Like back oh. in the day, is like you're—you're you're not allowed to serve yourself. You always serve to somebody else, mm-hmm. and you always try and get a hack. Like you do your tricks and then pass it. Now it's just you do your tricks until you drop it, and then you pass it to the next guy. No, I like that where you would—the idea is you, you throw the ball the, the footbag to someone else. And you start them off and then you try to, before you gag and drop, pass it along so the thing kind of continues and see how many, how long you can keep it in the air. We're old school though, man. We're old school. All right. Yeah. Now, when I first met you, you were working with a team. I don't think I met you before that. Did you have any early like solo performing experience before you teamed up with uh, Alex Zerby and the, the brothers from Different Mothers? Yeah. When I came back from Europe, I uh, was searching for a job that I could juggle or perform or something that integrated footbag. And uh, there was a school assembly tour um, that had footbag in its curriculum. And they did a show all across the country. And so I just sent the guy an email and I was like, hey, I can juggle, do Chinese yo-yo, which I couldn't do at the time. But I'm a really good footbagger and I'm interested in your tour. And he said, hey, do you have a car? I was like, yeah. He's like, can you go out in two weeks? I'm like, sure. <laughs> Someone had dropped out at the last minute. Right. So he was desperate. And so he uh, took me on. And that's sorry. I had known uh, Alex from the footbag community because he was also a footbagger. Alex had worked for this t- company before. And Peter, Peter Irish had also. So essentially, uh, the tour started in Washington, which is where, Seattle, where Alex is from. And uh, yeah, so he sort of sent Alex out to meet me and teach me the show. And so I spent about a a week with Alex and he taught me the show and 
sort of gave me the basics of performing and how to sort of convey the message that the show was supposed to have to to the kids. And that was a two-year job, touring around the country in my van, lived in my van, uh, doing three school programs a day, showing kids uh, non-competitive games from different countries. That was Scott Clear. Yeah, Scott Clear puts it on. He's also a footbagger. He's in the Footbag Hall of Fame. I don't know if he still does it. I, you know, I haven't talked to Scott in a couple of years, but um, I hope he does. I think he, I think he works with tennis. I think he's a, a tennis professional. Oh, uh, yeah. It was a great show. I mean, it's uh, teaches kids that you can get exercise without competing. It showed talked about different countries where the games come from. You know, juggling from Egypt, China, juggling sticks from China. You know, Chinese yo-yo. You know, talks a lot about the cultures. But what it did is that it allowed me free time on the road. So I go to the schools early. I'd have like an hour and a half before the show. And I just practice, practice juggling, practice skateboarding, practice whatever skill I was trying to learn, but just gave me like isolated time to just focus on stuff. So that was like a big, big uh, career achievement for me because it just allowed me to practice. Now, by Chinese yo-yo, you're referring to the Diablo. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because I've heard it referred by that, but I guess nowadays... If you said Chinese yo-yo, people are like, what? Yeah. Now, do you say Diablo or Diabolo? I say Diablo. I, I as well. I'm a Diablo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Some people say Diabolo. I say what? I say Diablo. Exactly. I never called it the Chinese yo-yo. That always gets, I always get confused with the Eskimo yo-yo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm really not quite sure what that is either, but that yeah. seems to me to be, you know, I if one thing. It, but I'd like to learn it, I think. I don't think so. I think it's just like some kind of piece of string, basically. All right. There's also the the yo-yo that's sort of the the Chinese yo-yo that sort of just extends out, like a like a you know like it sh- it shoots out and comes back. Oh, okay, yeah. I think that's also called the Chinese yo-yo. So, all right. Well, right, so you go on this long tour, yeah. which once again sounds. I mean, even though you're living in your van, it does sound kind of awesome that you have all this free time and basically you just get to play. As a 19, 20 year old guy who uh, didn't have a really girlfriend or anything to be able to go out, I was making thousand bucks a week, which for me at the time was great. And uh, you know, I was living in my van, but at the same time, I, it was fine. I was in a lot of places where you know, it wasn't really important that I have nice accommodations. A lot of these towns you're going to don't even have a hotel. It's like a post office, a bar, and a school, and your show's there at 7:30 in the morning. So you go there, sleep at night. But yeah, I practiced a ton, got my skills real, really great. I wouldn't say great, but I got my skills proficient enough, and I started adding humor into the shows because the the show that Scott put together was called Creative Athletics. It was more geared towards elementary school kids. When I would go and perform at high schools and do the show, I would just take a beating. These kids would just yeah. thought I was ridiculous. They'd heckle me. They would uh, think I wasn't cool, and it, yeah, it was rough. I just kind of scrapped the show when I did high schools and just sort of did a kind of a generic juggling show with whatever comedy I could come up with or had heard at the time. I'm sure there was some Raspini lines in there just to survive at these high schools. And so I sort of realized, oh yeah, this is pretty fun telling jokes and and juggling in front of people and actually sort of doing something that resembles my personality a little bit more. That was sort of a, a big break for me is just sort of like, okay, like I think I could, I like to do something like that, telling jokes and it seemed to come a little bit natural for me, at least being heckled and sort of having a witty retort. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a good, it was a good point. And to do that at a young age, to have the time to sort of, to, I feel like a lot of jugglers, like, or especially for footbag in general, 
most of them are teenagers because they're the people who have the time to train. They don't have other hangups in their life. I don't know if that's true with juggling, but it certainly was for me. Well, you certainly at that point in your life have the time. Yeah. And you have, you're hopefully having some kind of support by your parents. So the idea that you don't necessarily have to go out and make money allows you the luxury of, of having a hobby that doesn't necessarily have to turn out to be a profession. Absolutely. Yeah. Now you're following this solo path. What uh, led you to the decision to team up with Alex and, and, and how did you come up with this brothers from different mothers? Was that how you felt about each other? Uh, yeah, pretty much. We were we were pretty close friends. And uh, throughout my tours, I'd always come to Seattle. I had a sister who lived here. And so it was kind of, I'd come visit my sister and hang out with Alex and his wife. And uh, we'd play footbag. And Alex had floated around the idea of doing a show together. He had, I think he had done a show with like Josh Casey and maybe even Pete at some point. And he was pretty set on uh, doing a show with another person. And I just happened to be another person who was young enough and dumb enough to say, okay, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> well, I think most teams start like that. Like, yeah. it's not some grand plan. It's just, it just, things come together. You meet somebody and. Hey, I, I'll, I'll go suck and fail with somebody else. It's a lot easier than sucking and failing by yourself. But it sounds like you already sucked and failed by yourself. And some people, even that initial getting out on stage, they can't do it by themselves. They need the, they need the team to start and then they branch off into solo. But it sounds like you already had a. You brought a lot of experience to the team of being in harsh situations. Yeah, we certainly, you know, we certainly both had the hacky sack or the footbag background. We both had the school assembly background, which was nice. You know, I definitely wasn't afraid to be in front of people. It was sort of just that shift of sort of what, how do you put together a show? Like what, what is a show? What is it? What's a finale? What sort of skills do we have that is a finale? I moved to Seattle. We sort of tried it out. We did some street shows and they were pretty rough. I mean, looking back, the shows were pretty rough. I mean, at the time we were like, this is great. We made $50, but I feel like I should write a letter to each of those people thanking them for the kind of <laughs> Their kindness. Yeah. yeah. Just, sort of just sitting through that. It was sheer enthusiasm. I think we both were passionate about it and we both were excited about performing and sort of figuring out the show and so we called it the brothers from different mothers. We just wanted something to say in the beginning that kind of unified. Of course, like, you know, there was the Raspini brothers and we knew that brothers was a common theme. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really remember how it came about. But yeah, it was just like, I think it was like one of us had heard that term somewhere. And uh, so, yeah, we, brand, we branded the show Brothers from Different Mothers, and it, it got a laugh in the beginning, which we're desperate for, which is desperate for any sort of humor. And so it seemed to like, you know, audiences like, oh, Brothers from Different Mothers, that sounds fun. That's cool. And so, yeah, we just ran with it. Now, how long are you guys together? It seemed to me you were at least 10 years or 12 years or something like that, or how, how long did it last? Maybe eight years, I think. It wasn't, it wasn't a super long run. It extended past where it should have, but... I think it, maybe eight years. I think we started when I was 20 and ended when I was 28 or 29. So yeah, eight or nine years. Now, when you're in a team, like I know I've been, you know, obviously I've been in a team for a long time that eventually they run their course. Our, ours took 34 years to run its course. So that's an amazing run, man. But uh, yours, you sort of ran its course from, I don't want to say some, from friends to not being friends at the end, but it did seem like you guys had your difficulties. It was just a clash of personalities or just a desire to do different things with the show? I think it's just a bunch of different things. I think it was, um, I don't think that person, I mean, I was pretty immature when we started. I was 20 years old and Alex was also young, 20, he's five years older than me, 25. But it was just a variety of different things. It was personality. It was communication was the big one. We had very different communication skills. I was a bad communicator. He wasn't a great communicator. So that made things every issue, you know, compounded with our bad communication. 
Uh, different goals, different visions for the show, different desires. Um, you know, I'm pretty verbal. He's pretty physical, which made the show, I thought, great because it, we had such mm -hmm. a contrast and we could add different things, but it made it tough in the creation process. So, yeah, I think it, was just, it ran its course. And he was married very young and already had, already had two kids. Yeah, he had met his wife when I, when I met him, when I, which well, I was 17 when I met him. And so they had been together. I mean, I, I think they're still together. We don't. Yeah. But yeah. From what I know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and happily, I, they, their kids are growing up. Because it's funny because, like I said, I've maintained my friendship with both you and Alex. Yeah. So when I see you as individual people, I'm like, these guys are both great people and nice people. Why can I get along with both of them? And they, but also it's the familiarity does sometimes breed contempt in that when you share a, a team and you have different goals or different lifestyles, that's different than just being a friendship on the outside. There is, yeah. there's different di dynamics in a team that for people who haven't had been in a team as jugglers, there are a lot of moments where the, if the bond isn't strong enough, yeah. it's easy to break apart. Yeah, and it's uh, no matter who it is, if it's your best friend, if it's your wife, if it's your boyfriend, if you spend 24-7 with them mm -hmm. in a car or in a hotel, you know, there's going to be friction regardless of how much you love or get along with them. There's going to be time where you need a break. But yeah, you're right. Friendships shift. You know, relationships shift. We all change. We all grow. Um, we all bring our own baggage and our own issues to every relationship and communication. And I think if your communication is not strong. If you don't have a, a foundation of strong communication where you can say what you want, what you need, how you how the show went, and you really take emotions out of it, it can be challenging. And so especially with the team where it's like, not only are you traveling together, you're creating together, you're performing together, your job, your money is tied up in each other, your lives are so intertwined that if you don't have sort of a clear understanding of what people want or how they operate, or where they want to go, it can deteriorate fast. Now, what was the highlight for the America for the brothers from different mothers? Was there one moment where you guys felt like, wow, we've we've achieved this, we've reached this point? What would you, what do you think was the sort of the high point you guys achieved together? That's a great question. I don't. I mean, I thought the show was great. I mean, I look back at the show and I think it was just a solid, awesome show. It was stand up. It was silly. It had traditional straight man, goofy man stuff. Um, that you really don't see anymore. I just thought the show was just a quality, quality show. And, you know, we performed all over the place, corporate events, halftime shows, colleges, cruises. You know, I don't know if there was a particular high, high point or high show, but yeah, I just thought it was, we had a solid product that we could sell. Now, you guys are solid products and you were certainly busy. You were doing a lot of jobs. But what kind of uh, routines was it? Mostly, I remember club passing and both of you guys are good hat jugglers. Uh, Diablo players. Honestly, some of it resemb resembles my solo show. We do some hacky sack. Usually we had like a musical routine or a comedy routine of the same. Like we'd have music clubs or music or comedy clubs mm -hmm. based off of the venue that we perform. Like we do music at like a fair or comedy at like a corporate event. So that we travel with the same prop, but come up, have two different routines based off of where we were. So we did that with Diablo. We do lots, lots of character-based stuff. You know, I was the straight man, so it was a lot of like this. We and we, our backstory is that we shared the same dad, but we had different moms. It wasn't your dad, Denzel Washington? Was that? Yeah, the... I think that was a joke at some point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I advise that too when I talk to people. The idea of having two versions of, of an act. Yeah, like one you can do internationally to music or places where comedy won't play. 
Yeah. And then one for you know the situation where you need to bulk it out. And nothing bulks out a routine by adding dialogue and, yeah. and more humor to it. Well, and I think that goes not just your show, but if you are in a duo, to also have your solo stuff sort of worked out. I don't think that anyone should ever just do duo shows. I think you should also like have your own creative thing on the side, maybe your own work that you can do and develop and maybe bring to the duo. But yeah, I mean, you know, having multiple options in your career for routines or for who you work with and where you work with, I think is... Well, what's, what struck me at, with the two of you is that you seem more interested, like you were saying, the verbal comedy, and you've sort of gone on to focus more on the, the lines, the dialogue, comedy clubs, being more verbal, verbal. And Alex has definitely worked more towards the family audiences, being more of sort of a living cartoon, great with the physical comedy. What's nice to see is how you've both become successful. Yeah, yeah. So that's really nice to see for me as uh, someone who, like I say, is friendly with both of you, Yeah. that you took this basis that um, I know I spent a lot of time trying to get you guys to break up. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I think, you know, we, we all talked a lot about the equity in an act, like moving forward, the team thing, unless there's an equity of making more money than you can as a solo or some grand vision, it yeah. eventually will peter out. Yeah. Well, and we weren't at Raspini level. We weren't making hand money over fists, but so it was a lot easier to split up because the writing was on the wall. We could easily make more money as a solo act than you can as a duo act, unless you're performing demanding $15,000 a show and you can't really get that as a solo act. It's easy to say, okay, it's time to, time to go our separate ways. And yeah, he's, he's been successful. I mean, I don't really follow him so much, but what I've seen is he's doing a great job and you were very helpful in the split up and the way that we did it was pretty smart. We set a date for a year in advance because we had already we had bookings and it allowed us time to sort of get our ducks in a row and sort of figure out our solo shows and our solo business and what that looked like and where we were going to do it. And um, so it was a year of turmoil, but it was also nice because it was like it didn't abruptly stop and we were just kind of left trying to figure it out in the dark. So, but you were very helpful in sort of being a mediator and helping us out. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> well, like I said, I just, I've always been trying a guy who tries to help. Yeah, and, you have been. You were paramount in our success as a, as a duo. You took the time to help us write comedy and bounce ideas off of it. I think, I think we hired you as a creative consultant three or four times. You fired us, I think all four times. <laughs> well, I think Alex's thing was, I think at one time I said, my encouragement was, well, I don't think you guys totally suck. Yeah. Something something like yeah. that. Yeah. I think your your words were, you guys got to be the kings of the guys who suck. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a direct quote. <laughs> well, okay. That's not a very high level to, to achieve, I don't think. But uh... Yeah. I think at the beginning, you said, you, we sent you a video and you said, I wouldn't say you have no potential at all. <laughs> I'm better now. Yeah. Well, I, no, I've learned I, to. I'm fine with that sort of coaching. It sort of puts it in perspective you know you're honest you're brutally honest and a lot of people aren't can't take that for me i thought that was great it made me want to work harder and sort of uh get to the point where i was the king of the guy who sucked <laughs> well now you you better than that i would say you have potential you've achieved a lot of your potential i think i'm the prince of the guys who are all right there you go yeah but hey you have five guinness records are those records you set with alex or records you set on your own uh, let me talk to me about those I currently have three Guinness World Records. One of them I set with Alex originally. I have since broken with somebody else. 
that's uh, most continuous leapfrogs. Like with three clubs, where yeah, yeah. One, one juggler jumps over the other one's shoulders and grabs the clubs. Yeah, steal the three clubs, and then the person does it with you. So Is that a time thing? How many How many do you have to do to have that record? Most in a minute. Oh, okay. Let me look at the, I think it was 13 is the record. Nice. Not much not much setup time between those, just jump. Yeah, I mean, it's, jump. there's only a certain amount that could even be done because it just it, the amount of time it takes to just leap and do it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I have uh, most bowling balls kicked off my foot and caught on my forehead in 30 seconds. Oh, how many is that? I think it's six or seven, maybe seven. I forget what it is. I think seven. So you have the bowling ball on your foot. You kick it up in such a way that it kind of meets your forehead without sort of dropping on it. Yeah. Kind of like you would like a, for the start of a head roll. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, balance it on my forehead and then quickly throw it off my head, put it on my foot and do it again. How many How many you do in 30 seconds? And how does one learn a stunt like that? Is it start by just throwing it from the hand or, or placing it gently on the forehead? How does one build up to kicking a bowling ball to their forehead? Well, yeah, I went through the, the whole process. So I practiced doing the trick with the soccer ball. I mm-hmm. got the motion and I got my muscle memory with the soccer ball. And then once I got that down, I practiced throwing the bowling ball from my hands to my head. So I got used to catching something heavy on my head. How's that first one feel? The first time you try to throw a bowling ball to your head? It's fine because I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it from a short distance. You're sort of like throwing it up you're sort of guiding it with your hands so you just right and it's just getting used to the boat but eventually you just have to do it at one point you just have to put it on your foot and say all right screw this we're gonna try <laughs> there you go i did and i got a concussion the first time i did it cracked my head oh good. yeah i had to right. kind of lay down and take some time and yeah it took me a while to sort of get it down and get the confidence to sort of do it regularly just a, a series of stages and then saying screw it that's two of the records so you have the jump frogs the most bowling balls kicked to the head. What are the other ones? Well, I only have one more. And the okay. other one is, um, it's, it's kind of complicated to say, but it's essentially it's me and a partner. We're passing three clubs continuously, one, mm-hmm. two, three, and we switch clothes oh, without okay. without dropping the clubs or the clothes. So we, we exchange five articles of clothing uh, between the two of us while passing three clubs between the two of us. Are you passing with both hands or just passing from right hand to left hand? Like, like you would regular passing. Gotcha. But then you add the objects of the clothing, and then you switch clothing. Exactly. It's a, it's a pretty fun trick. It's uh, pretty visual. It gets a lot of light. We, we've done it at a few shows and stuff, and it's, uh, it's pretty visual. People are into it. But yeah, it was a fun trick. We did that on a Chinese television show, which was, I think, I don't know how many people viewed it, but it was like 100-something million people watched us get naked on TV. Well, that's, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> and we did it on an Italian TV show, and they wanted us, they actually made costumes for us mm-hmm. they want us to wear this old italian underwear which is like like a one-piece swimsuit okay like yeah like a signal like a wrestling signal yeah something. and but it was so tight that you could see all my junk you could see <laughs> and so it's just like here I, you hear the studio audience is like almost throwing up <laughs> you expose a little bit too much yeah, yeah. Well, that's italy right it's like... you want exposure but maybe not that much exposure <laughs> now you also competed i think i guess with alex on america's got talent what are your thoughts about these sort of reality competition shows and how was your experience on that show? We were on season two, which was the season that Terry Fader won. I don't have an opinion either way. It, that was our first sort of into national television and sort of how it works and sort of opened our eyes to not 
everything that happens on stage or live is what is portrayed on television. I think that was, I didn't learn that until that. So they can manipulate your act or your image any way that they want to get ratings. It's all about ratings. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. It was good. I, I think everyone should do it. I think everyone should try and figure out a way to get on TV. It's good, great for exposure, but it's just great to see how it works and put your act out there and see how people respond. It was good. You know, they call me every year to come back, but I'm like, I don't know what, you know, what I would gain out of it. I would never win. Well, I guess I have just something more current for the real. True. I mean, yeah, the passing zone's gone on a couple of times. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, they, they wouldn't go on if it didn't, wasn't beneficial for them. You got to stay up to date, man. You can't, you can't be out of sight. You have yeah. to eventually true. step back in that arena and say, here's, I can't use this video from five years ago or six years ago. Yeah. I need new footage. That brings us up to date. What, what kind of, how's your career look today? What kind of jobs are you doing? What kind of schedule you're having? And is it mostly cruises? Is it, is it colleges? Uh, what's a, a year in Matt Baker's life look like now? It's all over the map. I do a lot of different stuff. I do uh, a lot of cruises, a few colleges, not as many colleges as I used to. I think I'm sort of aging out of that market a little bit. Corporate events. I do some fairs and festivals in the summer. I do a bunch of theaters. I do shows with my friends. Yeah, I'm headed out on a cruise next week. I did the Moisture Festival a week and a half ago, which is a big variety arts festival here in Seattle. Yeah, so where, wherever, like I have no, there's no real market that I sort of pinpointed. I sort of work at a lot of different venues and it's great. It kind of keeps me on my toes, allows me to sort of develop new stuff and uh, work on new acts that I wouldn't normally do if I was just in one market. So it's good. I know one new trick. So do you consider yourself more of a juggler or a, a stunt performer because one stunt you do is you you have an apple in your mouth and once again you have an object on your foot when this time it's sort of a large fork yeah then you kick up the fork and you catch it stuck in the apple that you're holding in your mouth yeah do you consider that a juggling stunt or just more of a action stunt i mean do you call your show action comedy are you comedy juggler how do you describe your show? I call my show a comedy stunt show and then when people ask what that means i say it's just con jokes and weird skills yeah mm -hmm. series of unusual skills I, yeah, I don't really juggle so much in the show anymore. I, I, I have one routine that I'll do at the beginning of the show. And sometimes if I have to fill time, I'll do another juggling thing. But it's mostly just basic circus skills, weird stuff like the, you know, kicking the fork off the foot into the apple, the bowling ball to the, to the head, uh, balancing a stick horse on my foot and kicking up and catching on my face, stuff like that. Do some hacky sack. But yeah, it's, it more resembles just a sort of cacophony of weird and a, unusual talents. And you have your side projects. Let me talk about a couple of them before our end of our podcast time together. You have your photo blog. Yeah. Which is uh, Digit Face. Yeah. Do you want to describe what Digit Face is? It's a, it was a photo photo blog. before this is web, I started before Instagram and anything was available. People would send me characters or pictures that they had drawn on their fingers, their digits, or their feet. And uh, I'd post them on, this, on the site. I had a little comic strip for it. And I got photos from all around the world. It was just kind of a cool art project, a simple art project that people could get behind that anyone could do. And it was fun until my site got hacked. And so now it's sort of on the back burner. Is there a place people can go look at the Digitface cartoons and the and the pictures? Or is it up anywhere we could see it? Yeah, there's some that's uh, digitface.com. The website still exists. It's sort of morphed into a Tumblr site that's been sort of unattended to for a long time. But there's a lot of really fun stuff. We have an Instagram page, which I just started like a, maybe 
a month and a half ago, just to sort of offload all the pictures that I have. I'm not really sort of pursuing it as something yeah. that much anymore. But it's, it was fun, and I, I still get photos today from people. It's pretty awesome, like just how creative people can be with a simple concept. And I enjoy reading your blog. I was looking at it during my research for this <laughs> podcast. So why don't we end with a few uh, a few stories from the blog, a few topics. Yeah. And then maybe you can just sort of uh, expand upon what these subjects are, and we could, we'll end with that. Now, uh, the first one I like is, Jokes that turn off a crowd. Is that just a from personal experience or is there a particular joke that you feel the, the crowd turned against you that you tried and did not work? Well, that's that's my whole career is telling jokes. And it's, so that, <laughs> just sort of I think I forget the article, but I think uh, it's just sort of examples of times that I thought jokes would be funny to do impromptu and that can turn an audience as much as an audience can love you. They can also turn on you very quickly if uh, your jokes are not well thought out or ill-advised or in bad taste. I think the blog is in bad taste jokes that I've impromptu said that I thought would be funny and the audience did not. And so you're sort of <laughs> digging yourself out of the hole the rest of the show. Uh, That's a line you want to walk, though, because you always feel like if every joke is safe, like if I'm not pushing the envelope at all, I sort of maybe not, I don't want to fall in that hack territory, but it just seems a little bit too... Is this what comedy is all about, trying to please everybody with every joke? Yeah. But I think we learn over experience that, especially a situation where you're being paid or maybe it's a corporate event or a college event where one joke can sort of be the thing that changes it from a positive experience to a negative experience, that sometimes we need to temper our desire to be funny with our desire to do a good job. Yeah, because you want to keep an edge too, but you also need to do the job that you were hired to do. And if they ask you to be clean, you need to be clean. If they ask you to not make political jokes, you need to not make political jokes. It's a, it's a... We're a service provider. That's what we do. We provide a service. Exactly. Like I remember I did a theme park in New York and I was there for a month and I was doing shows for, it was pretty dire straits. It was, there was not a lot of people watching mm -hmm. the show. And so what I would do is I go out as an opportunity to work out at some new material. So what I would do is my show would be at one, I'd go out sort of 12.45 and I just sort of talk to the crowd and run new jokes and sort of new ideas. But I always do the show at one o'clock. I always did the material that I was hired, but the client came and said, we didn't hire you to work on material here. We, <laughs> right, right. we didn't hire you to do an open mic. We hired you to do the show. <laughs> And uh, it sort of like really made me realize like, yeah, you should have your stuff together. You shouldn't really be workshopping large chunks of stuff to a paid crowd. Well, but the idea also is when you do one of these amusement park jobs, the, the fact that you're doing a lot of shows per day. Yeah. And the ability to, and unfortunately, amusement parks are not the highest paid of jobs. No. And sometimes the stages are not always the most well attended. Yeah. So if you're saying, well, one reason I took the job is so I can work out my material and be in front of an audience. But there is that balance of, of once again, satisfying the client first yeah. and then maybe satisfying your personal desires second. What I think is that you should always put, like every show you should have a new, jo new joke or something that, a new idea that you're working on. That should always be in your show. Like you should, if you're an artist, you should always be doing your art. But I think what I was doing was just large chunks. You know, I was doing 15 minutes of untested standup. <laughs> right. A lot of it was falling flat. And also it was like not the environment for that specific material, but it was stuff I wanted to work on. I think that just in the sort of grand scheme of things, like maybe doing that much material at a, a gig is not good, but new material. But I think you should always have like a new joke or try something sure. a little, a different variation on it just to keep it interesting for yourself to always try and be pushing yourself and to grow. Yeah, I think that's important. 
Well, you need to add laughs. You want to go like, okay, I made money and I've added five new laughs to exactly. my show. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's go. Let's move on to one more story before we. Uh, right. Because here's something that's every every uh, cruise ship performer's nightmare, and the title of this blog is "Missing My Cruise Ship." Yeah, is it a situation where you were you were in port too long? Yeah, how does one miss their cruise ship? For those listeners who never worked on a cruise, so when you get off the ship, they say they tell you what time your all aboard is, which is what time you have to be back on the ship. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had gone from one port to the next port, and the next port I think was an hour behind. And uh, I didn't sort of acquiesce to the uh, sure, the time change to the change, and so I was just in a park reading, and this is when I was working with Alex, and we were on a ship working, and he calls me and says, "Hey, where are you? They've been calling your name for like, oh, you know, forty-five minutes," and I'm like, <laughs> "He's like, yeah." I was like, "Well, why didn't you call me the first time when they called my name?" I was like, "I'll be right there." Got in the cab, was there five minutes later, and the the cruise ship was already sailing out. Ooh, that's a moment, right? That's a moment when you, you get there and you see the ship, you're going, I think I just missed it. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's sailing out. And it, it was tough because a lot of stuff goes through your mind. Like, am I going to get fired? Right. Luckily, I didn't miss any shows. I just, you know, I travel a lot. So it wasn't that big of a deal to sort of figure out, get a place to stay. I, I, my friend David Aiken flew in that night. He was catching a ship the next day. So I got to hang out with him. Mm-hmm. Got a toothbrush and stuff and I paid for a flight to go to the next port the next day. Right. Well, just stayed the night and flew myself there, paid for it myself, walked on the ship and didn't miss a show, luckily. But I did have to meet with the captain and the right, right. director and get a stern talking to. But yeah, I mean, it was a, it's kind of a panic mode. I think all performers fear is that, oh, crap, I'm going to get fired from this gig. And I didn't actually, the brothers split up shortly after that. So I didn't work on that particular cruise line until a couple years ago. That's a good lesson, though, that there are moments in our careers that we dread or we anticipate being the end or being something that's insurmountable or that somehow we're going to embarrass ourselves or fail. Or And the idea is that I don't want to say a career is a series of small failures, you know, interspersed with the successes. Yeah. But this need just to keep pushing forward and just keep moving forward with new adventures, new routines. Absolutely. New career challenges. And yeah. you seem to be... A guy who's hitting all that and seems to have a right idea about where your life is going and your future. What can we expect for the future of uh, Matt Baker? I don't know. I'm I'm hoping to take over this podcast after. You know. <laughs> exactly. Well, you are number sixty nine, and <laughs> hey, hey, I don't see myself going uh, that much further. I mean, it'd be nice to shoot for a hundred. I imagine. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I, I, I don't know if it necessarily has to be jugglers. I mean, couldn't it just be circus performers? And well, our sponsor is basically the International Jugglers oh, Association. Gotcha. Yeah. And you're a person who's who's competed in the IJ, is that correct? No, never. I've, oh. I've only ever been to the IJ once when it was in Portland. I went, and it was uh, quite the spectacle. It was amazing. Any plans to try to uh, go to more juggling festivals, or is that something that, just given your schedule, doesn't really play much part into your, your career or your, your yearly agenda? Um, it's not something I necessarily seek out. I don't juggle as a hobby as that much anymore. It's mostly, you know, weird skills and stunts and, mm-hmm. and stand up. If I was asked, I'd, I would love to, you know, I'd love to come do a juggling festival or perform or MC or even just attend. I'd love to do it. I think here in Seattle, we ran a juggling festival for a while, which you attended mm-hmm. the Seattle juggling and footbag festival. And it was always some of my favorite times is just having people from 
all over the country and all over North America come and sort of participate. You came out and were in our show. And in the future, just try and do doing what Dan Holtzman does. You know, stay busy, try and be as creative as possible, keep pushing my creativity. That's, I think that's really my, uh, my strength is not the performing, it's just being creative and trying to just come up with projects and see them through and uh, try and live a good life. That sounds good, man. I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. And of course, I look forward to staying in touch with you and, you know, keeping our friendship up, keeping our contact up, no matter where you are. And uh, I want to thank you for being taking the time out of your, your trips to Tanzania and your, <laughs> your trips to Bora Bora. Anything for Dan Holtzman. You've been, uh, you've been a huge inspiration to not only me or and Alex, but so many other performers. And I'm sure you hear this all the time from people, but... Never enough. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure you have. You were a huge inspiration. And it's as someone who sort of looked up to you coming up in, in this business and having access to you as a person and you taking the time out of your day to sort of hang out with me and Alex and uh, other performers and let us tap into your wealth of knowledge. It's, uh, it's really, a lot of people don't do that. And so... It's uh, thanks for doing that and being there for people and putting this podcast together. And maybe who knows, someone listens to this and they garner some insight into becoming a professional juggler from you or I or whoever. I mean, it's a good thing that you're doing, man. And thanks for being you. Well, that's that's I'm going to stop this before I tear up. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Matt. All right, buddy. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Well, that's a wrap on Drop Everything Podcast number 69. Let's thank our special guest. Mr. Matt Baker. Thank you, Matt. Good luck on life's grand adventure, wherever it might take you. Hey, before we go, let's thank our sponsors one more time, starting with the IJA. We all know that stands for International Jugglers Association. Visit juggle.org, find out information about this year's festival taking place in Fort Wayne, Indiana, June 24th through the 30th. Go to amazon.com, buy my new book, Driven to Succeed. Check out my author's page for other books available from me, Dan Holzman. Also have my toy, the Ring Dama. Also from Zing Toys, the Zing Dama. Well, thanks for listening, folks. Go out there into the world and drop everything except when you're juggling.